And we find here three very basic, simple instructions. If we are committed to living our lives Jesus' way, here's what he calls on us to do. Number one, don't be judgmental. Number two, be discerning. Number three, depend completely on God. So firstly, don't be judgmental, and we're looking here at verses 1 to 5. Don't judge, or you too will be judged. Now, as I was preparing this week, I was trying to imagine how the disciples of Jesus were feeling at this point in the sermon. I mean, they'd been listening for a while. They'd heard chapters 5 and 6. I guess some of them were feeling pretty convicted. Uh, If they were honest with themselves... They knew that they'd failed on every single issue Jesus has raised so far. But having said that, I'd be very surprised if there weren't others listening to Jesus who felt rather differently. Uh, They'd been nodding their heads all the way through chapters 5 and 6. And uh, at least in their minds, they were thinking to themselves, Jesus, that's absolutely right. Preach it, brother. Uh, At last, you know, here was a rabbi who wasn't going to compromise. There was no woolly nonsense. He wasn't being cloudy with them in any way. No, he was setting the highest possible standards. This was just what the country needed, they were thinking. And as Jesus spoke about adultery and lust, uh, they thought immediately of that red-light district in Tiberias with all those prostitutes applying their trade. It was high time somebody sorted them out. And uh, when Jesus mentioned those hypocrites showing off with their prayers in the synagogue, well, a few names immediately came to mind, didn't they? Uh, That Simeon, well, he really fancied himself. And uh, as for Benjamin, well, I mean, he always put on that dreadful, pious voice whenever he was asked to lead the prayers. And you could tell he wasn't sincere. And they were absolutely delighted when Jesus condemned materialism. All those city types in Jerusalem, uh, they were not living up to Jesus' standards and it was high time somebody challenged them. Now they knew that they weren't perfect themselves, these people, but at least they were trying to live Jesus' way, which is more than they could say for most people. And so, up to this point in the sermon, They've been with Jesus all the way. They've been nodding their heads, uh, affirming his teaching, committing themselves to obeying it. And that commitment was making them feel really pretty good about themselves. If only everybody else could be so wonderfully moral. Well, if there were disciples like that listening to the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verse 1 would have been a surprise and a shock. Because in their minds, they'd been pointing their fingers at other people every step of the way as Jesus was speaking. And all of a sudden, they now find a rather large and authoritative finger pointing at them. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Uh, A recent survey asked people to quote a verse from the Bible. More people quoted chapter 7, verse 1, than any other verse. 
And it's often used, isn't it, against Christians. I wonder whether you've noticed this. Uh, Perhaps in a discussion amongst our friends, we might dare to suggest that sex outside marriage is wrong. Oh, don't judge, we're told. And uh, notice, as they point the finger, uh, telling us not to judge, what are they doing? They're judging us. But that's by the way. Or perhaps we might say that uh, Jesus is the only way to God and that where other religions contradict Jesus, they are in error. And again, we're met with the same response. Don't judge! But of course, our friends have completely misunderstood what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus is not asking us to suspend our critical faculties, to never make a distinction between right and wrong. I mean, that's perfectly clear from the rest of the sermon. So, for example, in a moment, we're going to be looking at verse 6. Have a quick look at it. Where in uh, verse 6, we're told not to throw our pearls to pigs. Now, that assumes immediately, doesn't it, the ability to decide who's a pig and who isn't. Or later on, in verse 15, which we'll look at next week, we're told to beware false prophets. Well, you can't possibly do that without first making a judgment about who's a true prophet And who's a false one? So when Jesus tells us, do not judge, he's not trying to prevent us from being discerning. No, no. We should continue to distinguish between right and wrong, between what is false and what is true. But what Jesus, you see, is forbidding here is a judgmental or critical spirit. Now, friends, that is a very great danger for religious people with strict moral standards. Because it's very easy for us, isn't it, to sit on our high horse and look down our long evangelical noses at the people beneath us. Uh, And we judge them. And the more we point out the faults of others, the better we feel about ourselves. And it's a danger for churches as well, actually. We can be far too hasty, can't we, in latching on to the perceived weaknesses of others and, in the process, exalting ourselves above them. And we can sometimes give the impression that ours is the only church worth going to, which, of course, is nonsense. Now, we need to heed the lesson of the illustration which Jesus gives in verses 3 to 5. Uh, Have a look at it. I know it's familiar, but um, let's try and bring it up to date. Now, it's an absurd picture. There is the surgeon, and he's getting ready to remove a tiny splinter from a patient's eye. Uh, There he is, he's scrubbed up, he's scrubbing his hands, he's put on his gown, he's taking up the knife, and all the time ignoring the fact that this enormous plank of wood sticking out of his own eye. And so he turns his head in one direction and he knocks the nurse unconscious. Uh, He turns his head the other way and all of the instruments go flying off the trolley. We're meant to laugh. It is a ridiculous picture. And you see, Jesus is saying, my friends, that is what you're like when you condemn other people without attending to your own faults. It is uncomfortable teaching this, isn't it? 
It certainly convicted me because my natural tendency, I think, is to magnify the faults of other people and to minimise my own. Maybe that's your fault as well, I don't know. You see, we can be so quick, can't we, to pounce on some doctrinal flaw in another Christian, however small that might be. But we're very slow indeed to sort out the far more serious moral weaknesses in our own lives. We take far too much pleasure discussing the specs in other people's lives. And of course, uh, as we do that, we pretend, don't we, to be terribly concerned about them. But often there's no productive purpose in the conversation. It's just gossip, thinly disguised. And if only we gave half as much attention, friends, to the planks in our own eyes as we do to other people's specs. Now, of course, there is a place, there is a place for correcting one another, for helping one another on towards greater godliness. The Bible expects it, Jesus expects it. It's a good thing to remove a speck from another person's eye. But we're never to do it out of any sense of superiority. And if we only knew ourselves better, actually there'd be no risk of that. Don't be judgmental, says Jesus. But then secondly, and rather more positively, Jesus says, be discerning. And uh, here we're looking at verse 6. This, I think, is a balancing verse. Jesus says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. It certainly seems, doesn't it, as if this is a very deliberate balance to what Jesus has just been saying. Because, you see, a wooden and rather literal reading of verses 1 to 5 might give the impression that uh, Christian disciples are to make no distinctions whatsoever between people, to act as if everybody's the same, equally good, equally truthful. But of course that's sheer nonsense, isn't it? I mean, that would be silly. And verse 6 makes it clear that although we are not to be judgmental, we are to be discerning. There is a balance. And here we're given one very particular illustration of the principle. And the principle is that you and I are to be discerning about those with whom we share the gospel. Now, one of his parables, I'm sure you'll remember, that Jesus likens the kingdom of God, or the gospel, to a pearl of great price. Uh, the largest pearl ever found was recovered in 1934 from a, a giant clam in the waters off the Philippines. Uh, it's apparently nine inches long. Imagine that, pearl, nine inches long. It weighs 14 pounds, and uh, in 2007 it was valued at $93 million. But some experts maintain that it's priceless because it's absolutely unique, and nothing has been found like it before or since. But you see, the point is that Jesus is infinitely more precious than that. 
Because in him we find perfect love, perfect integrity, perfect holiness. And because of his death and his resurrection, he is able to offer you and me the priceless treasure of a place in his eternal kingdom. Complete forgiveness for every sin, no matter how bad. Eternal friendship with God the Father. The knowledge that we're living life as it's meant to be lived in fellowship with our maker and the certain hope of eternity in heaven. Now what could possibly compare to that? No wonder Jesus compares the gospel to a pearl, a precious pearl. Something so precious, something so holy, we are not to throw around indiscriminately. That's the point. Uh, The dogs that Jesus uh, speaks about in verse 6 aren't the tail-wagging, affectionate creatures on the television adverts for dog food. Uh, These were semi-wild hounds that roamed in packs around Jerusalem, scavenging for food off the the, uh, rubbish dumps. And pigs? Well, if your mind goes back far enough, don't think of those children cartoons. Uh, This is not Miss Piggy. Uh, This is not babe. Uh, As far as the Jews were concerned, pigs were detestable, unclean animals. So this is very shocking language, isn't it? Very disturbing. Because Jesus not only likens some people to dogs and pigs, but he actively encourages us not to share the gospel with them. Now I hope you're ahead of me here. You see, how does that fit with what Jesus teaches elsewhere? I mean, doesn't Jesus command us to go out into all the world and take the gospel to all nations? Yes, he does. I mean, surely that includes everybody, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It's not for us to decide in advance who's going to respond positively to the gospel and who isn't. I know we should try and reach... Everybody, and I do hope in light of what Alita said this morning, that we're all going to recommit to the Go 100 initiative this year. We're praying for opportunities to reach people who've never shown any interest whatsoever in Christian things. Praying that God might use our conversations to quicken an interest in them and draw them to Christ. They might never have been to church in their lives, They might come from a totally different faith background, quite likely in Cape Town. Uh, They might be living what seems to us to be an extremely unchristian life. And yet in spite of that, let's go out, let's reach them with the gospel. Because there have been so many unlikely converts over the years, haven't there? Uh, Paul, the persecutor. Uh, Augustine, the womanizer. Uh, John Newton, the human trafficker. Now we're called to proclaim the gospel to everyone whether or not we can imagine them getting converted. But you see, if that's true, who are the dogs? Who are the pigs that Jesus tells us not to share the gospel with? Well, surely it's logical, isn't it? They must be those people who've heard it and who've rejected it 
violently or forcefully. They've revealed their attitude in a persistent and violent reaction against God and his truth. And you see, continuing to proclaim the gospel to them will serve no useful purpose. It will only antagonise them, prompt another aggressive, blasphemous response. Jesus says we are to be discerning in our evangelism. With most people, we've got to persist in prayer, look for those opportunities to speak about Christ, invite them to come along and hear about Jesus at church. But where our efforts are decisively rejected, move on. So, when Jesus sends out the twelve, I wonder if you remember this, he, he warned them, didn't he, that there would be those who wouldn't welcome them. And what did he tell them to do? He told them to leave their towns and shake the dust off their feet when they did. In other words, don't go back, leave them. The Apostle Paul followed the same principle, didn't he? Do you remember, whenever he arrived at a new city in the Mediterranean, the first thing he did was go to the Jews in the synagogue, but when they didn't like like it, when they rejected his message, he turned and went to the Gentiles. Now this is not a decision that you and I are ever to take glibly, smugly, or lightly, but there does come a time when it's right to stop throwing the pearl of great price before swine. Because to continue doing it is actually to cheapen God's gospel by letting these people trample it underfoot. That is not a good thing to be doing. So be discerning, says Jesus. And then thirdly, he says, depend completely on God. Verses 7 to 11. Now Jesus here is coming to the end of his sermon and I guess most of us are feeling pretty convicted. We've Different things will have convicted (coughs) different people. Perhaps this morning we're starting to recognise that rather large plank in our own eye that we haven't noticed up until now. Can I say again that if anyone thinks that Christianity is about getting right with God by my own efforts. Well, that means you haven't understood the Sermon on the Mount. Because if you read the Sermon on the Mount intelligently, you would quickly realise that's completely impossible. You see, we mustn't think of the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as if Jesus is lining up a series of hurdles that we've got to somehow leap over in order to get into the Kingdom of Heaven. You see, we could never, never actually jump over the hurdles that Jesus raises in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me just remind you of some of them, in case there's any doubt in your mind. You don't need to look them up. Chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus says, But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. How are you doing with that? Anyone fallen at that hurdle? Or chapter 5, verse 28, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All cleared that one happily, have we? Or what about the passage we're looking at this morning? Don't judge, or you too will be judged. Well, there's another hurdle crashing to the ground, isn't there? 
You see, if the teaching of Jesus leaves me feeling self-satisfied, well, either I haven't understood it, or I haven't understood myself. And I wonder if we recognise just how completely helpless all of us, all of us are before Almighty God. Uh, Think back for a moment to the last interview that you might have had, either perhaps for a job uh, or maybe to go to college or whatever it was. Now, in an interview, the aim is to show off your good points and do your very best to conceal the bad ones. Uh, You want to try and look presentable wearing your best clothes, uh, try and steer the conversation away from those things you know absolutely nothing about, and rather focus on those things where you can say something reasonably intelligent. Uh, When I was interviewed for a place at Cambridge University a hundred years ago, the professor uh, asked me to read an extract from a French novel, and I did, I thought I'd done pretty well, and then he asked me a few questions in French, and I replied as best I possibly could. Again, I thought I'd done pretty well. Uh, Because I'd rehearsed the answers, of course. And um, when I finished, he took off his glasses and said, oh dear, we can't speak French terribly well, can we? (laughs) Um, I mean, it was terribly humbling. But you see, the thing is, friends, all of us, all of us in this room, are going to have to stand one day before Almighty God, and that is one interview you cannot bluff your way through. Because, you see, we're not going to be able to say, I'm terribly sorry, I really don't want to talk about that part of my life. Let's talk about this, because I think I did rather better in that area. Can't we talk about that? Because, you see, Almighty God can see right through you. He sees right through the smart clothes. He sees right through the CV. He sees right through the charming smile and he knows exactly what you and I are like. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And uh, if we appeal to our goodness, I was a good person. If we appeal to our goodness or our achievements, I gave blood. Well, we've got no hope. No hope at all. Because the truth, friends, is that none of us have jumped elegantly over all of the hurdles in the Sermon on the Mount. None of us. We've actually crashed at every single one. And there is only one hope for any of us, and that is to cast ourselves on his mercy and beg him to give us what we know we don't deserve. We depend on his goodness, not our own, And that is precisely what the Lord Jesus is encouraging us to do in these verses, to depend completely, without reservation, on the mercy and grace of God. Verse 7, look at it again. Ask, and it will be given to you, says Jesus. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Now that is the most tremendous encouragement. You see, after being pointed to God's perfect standards and discovering just how far short I've fallen, 
well, quite honestly, I don't really want to go into the interview with God. I don't really want to knock on God's door because, quite honestly, I'm frightened of what will happen the other side, that I might be turned away. But you see, what actually happens is, as soon as I realise how far short I've fallen, Jesus comes out of the door and he says, don't go away, please come in. Ask, seek, knock. And won't you please notice, this is absolutely fascinating, please notice that this is not an appeal to those people who've passed a certain standard and lived a fairly decent life. It's for everybody. Verse 8. Can we all see verse 8 in our Bibles? For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, I don't know what's going on in your life this morning, but you might be feeling uh, terribly guilty. Could be one particular thing you've done. Uh, It could be a whole series of actions over a period of time. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, God could never, never forgive me for that. But you know what? He could. No doubt there were many people feeling desperately guilty as they listen to Jesus teach the Sermon on the Mount. And yet still Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. You see, he he died on the cross to stand in for you and me, to take the punishment for our disobedience. So you see, he can offer to everybody who turns to him the gift of perfect forgiveness, not half-baked forgiveness, Perfect forgiveness. Now I ask you, presented with such an invitation, how could we possibly hang back? And yet the truth, of course, is we often do. It might be that we doubt God's goodness. We find it hard to believe that he actually will bless us and give us good things. So I think it's really important to notice that the verbs that Jesus uses here are in the present continuous tense. He says, keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. And yet, if we know ourselves at all, the truth is we keep on hanging back. Isn't that right? And that's why Jesus uses the marvellous illustration that he does in verses 9 and 10. He's pointing out our foolishness. Which of you, he says, if his son or daughter asks for bread, will give them a stone, or if they ask for a fish, will give him a snake? So imagine for a moment Jesus uh, pointing to somebody in the crowd and saying to them, well, just think about yourself for a moment. Uh, Your son has been pestering you for weeks uh, to give him an iPad for Christmas and he simply won't stop stop talking about it. And uh, Christmas morning comes, and he puts his hand down into the stocking, and he feels something square, and he thinks, oh, terrific. Mum and Dad have actually given me an iPad, and he touches it, and as he does so, he leaps up in agony, because instead of an iPad, you put a mousetrap in there. Now, 
That's the kind of absurdity in this illustration. So Jesus says in verse 11, very important words, if you then, though you are evil, that of course is the truth, Jesus knows exactly what we're like, we are evil, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, and you do, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Yes, God is perfect, but let's never forget that he's also the loving Father of all who trust in Christ. And he delights, delights to give good gifts to all his children. By the way, just a clarification, that is not a promise that God is going to give you everything you want. Now that would not be good for us. Generally we don't know what's best for us, but God does. And uh, God's love demands that we don't always get what we want. But you see, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, this is a promise of grace Grace to those who know themselves to be unworthy, who've been convicted in their hearts of their disobedience in the face of God's perfect standards. And yet in spite of our disobedience, God says, come, come, don't hang back. It's an invitation, isn't it, to be hungry for what is right, to long to know God better and to long to reflect his perfect standards in our lives more and more. So can you see there is this, this tension in the Sermon on the Mount? On the one hand, we are convicted, aren't we, in our hearts by God's perfect standards, which we haven't met. And actually none more so than the standard in verse 12, the last verse in the passage, which really summarises everything that's gone before, sometimes called the golden rule. So in everything do to others what you would have them do to you. But this sums up the law and the prophets. And uh, as we're pointed to God's perfect standards, summarised there in verse 12, we, we, feel, we feel so wretched, or at least we ought to. But then in our despair, Jesus comes to us and warmly and lovingly he says, ask, seek, knock. Don't be driven away by the perfect standard of God. He is perfect, but there's a way back. Perhaps you've never come. Well, you need to come. And you need to put your trust in Christ and on his cross, like that picture Alita and Brenda showed us a bit earlier. Maybe you've come many times before, but can I remind you that we need to come to God and recognise we are dependent on him every single day for his mercy and grace, not just for forgiveness, but for transformation by the Spirit, so that we can at least begin to live according to the standards Jesus puts before us in the Sermon on the Mount looking forward to the day when those people who in their hearts hunger and thirst for righteousness will be perfectly and completely 
satisfied. Let's pray. Father, help us. We are utterly dependent on you, dependent for mercy, dependent for grace, to live a life that begins in some small way to reflect your standards. Where we've been convicted this morning, we again say sorry. And we ask that by your Spirit, you would give us the strength that we need to change for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.